0: Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile of the Podcast. This is episode 107 called Lindsay. Hey everyone, it's Allie and Blair, the co-founders of Fertility Rally. And we wanted to tell you about an amazing event we're hosting on Saturday, April 17th. The event is called Fertility Rally Live, an all-day virtual celebration of the infertility community for anyone and everyone building their modern families and seeking empowerment, education, support, and community. Our speakers are some of the biggest names and brightest minds in the infertility community and beyond. Our morning keynotes are Minas Starciak-Hawk and Steve Hawk from HGTV's Good Bones. And our afternoon keynote is Jessica Zucker, PhD and author of the acclaimed memoir, I Had a Miscarriage. In addition to those two amazing keynotes, we're hosting a couples panel, a female physicians panel, and 16 breakout
1: sessions covering everything we could squeeze into one day, including surrogacy, IVF, pregnancy after infertility, male factor infertility, donor conception,
0: embryo adoption, recurrent pregnancy loss, and so much more. There will also be tons of giveaways all day long from fertility friendly and wellness brands. And of course, a happy hour with a very special guest, a VIP after party, and a virtual swag bag worth hundreds of dollars. If you or someone you know is navigating infertility, you will love our event. We are here to empower and educate
1: you and have some fun along the way, of course. Tickets are on sale now at fertilityrally.com. Head over to our IG at Fertility rally for even more info on speakers and tickets. We can't wait to rally with you.
0: I'm so thrilled to tell you guys about today's sponsor, Extend Fertility. Extend Fertility was founded on the premise that democratizing egg freezing could ultimately change the fertility industry and deliver better results. Their co founder, Dr. Joshua Klein, was actually my doctor. And as you may have heard me say when I interviewed him in episode 36 of this podcast, he's brilliant and supportive and overall awesome. Dr. Klein observed that IVF's success rate was low for women over 40 and its high cost was disappointing for doctors and patients alike. Dr. Klein saw the opportunity to help women think more proactively about their fertility. He believed that if more women could access their younger eggs during the IVF process, more women would see successful outcomes. He founded Extend Fertility, which began offering egg freezing at 40% below the national average cost. By 2017, they were the largest egg freezing practice in the nation. And today, they've expanded to offer a full range of infertility services, including IVF in a small practice environment that is more personal, higher quality, and data-driven. To make an appointment or to see more, go to extendfertility.com and tell them Infertile AF sent you. Thanks, Extend. Okay, guys. So I want to tell you about Lindsay Fisher, who is my guest today and who also happens to be a good friend of mine. Lindsay is an author of two books. One is called The House on Sunset and one is called The Two-Week Weight Challenge. She is a former English teacher. She's a domestic violence survivor. And now she is an advocate for this community and a very big champion of self-care, which we'll talk about. So she's going to tell us today about having her twins, which did not come easy for her. So I'm going to let her tell you all the details. I don't want to give too much away, but I do want to thank Lindsay for taking the time. And without further ado, this is Lindsay's infertility story. All right, Lindsay. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to get to talk to you today. You are, let me just say when we first met, you came on our support group and I'd never, we'd like Instagram commented a little bit back and forth, but we'd never really talked. The minute I met you, I was like, I love this woman. Like you just have, you exude something that I really felt connected to and it doesn't happen very often, but I was like, I love her. Like I felt so like comfortable around you and just I was so excited to finally have met you and now to call you a friend. So just thank you for that. And I'm so excited to do this. I don't even know how to follow that up because (laughs) that was the sweetest thing. So thank you. It's true. I don't say that very often. Like I just... I don't know. You're just very, very real. And I felt like an instant. I think it's also like that TTC sister vibe that we have that instant bond anyway with people in our community. But with you, I really did feel it very strongly. And like, I feel like I trusted you right away. And we've had some good DMs just like about real shit. And I like that and I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of my and I hate to call it like a like a shtick cuz that's not really what it is, but that's kind of how I Yeah, it's not really like <laughs> with like a top to hat and a cane. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I think the thing that I have found through all of my story, which I know we'll get into, but is that being authentically myself and just being really honest about where I am and who I am. Makes people feel safer around you because if they can see your vulnerability, then their guard can at least be down a little bit because they're not worried about your intention. And so that's really kind of how I come into conversations is trying to make sure people understand that, like, I am just as, and not necessarily impacted, but under, like there's an empathy there for whatever trauma people have been through because I have been through so many different types of trauma in my life.
0: Yeah, you have for sure. And I, we're going to get into all that, but I think the empathy piece is so important too, because I've, I've said this before, but I think I'm so much more of an empathetic person and a non-judgmental person having gone through infertility. Would you say the same about yourself?
1: 100%. I think yeah. going through infertility You know, it humbles you to a level of like you have this different understanding of suffering. And I hate to, you know, say it that way, but truly it's like you know what it's like to be at the lowest of lows. And so when you see other people in that same place, even if they're making different decisions than you, or they take a different path than you, or even people that are suffering something that isn't necessarily infertility related, but you understand their grief or their mourning, you know, Mm -hmm. it's so much easier to understand that like, We're all human, and we're all doing our like, attempting to do our best, even if we're not at our best. And just taking that away is—it's been a really good silver lining, if you will.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. So you've written two books, and again, we're going to get into all this. One is your memoir called "The House on Sunset," which you sent to me, and I really—woo—it's so good, and I appreciate that. And your second one is called "The Two Week Weight Challenge." which came out in 2016 so we'll talk about both of those things but let's start at the beginning with you were you somebody that was like I always want to be a mom
1: I think I was busy being so opinionated on a lot <laughs> of things that I didn't even think about it okay <laughs> what do you mean I, I okay so I just think that like I have always been a very independent strong-willed person I if if there's something that I want to be doing, I'm going after it. And that's the Capricorn in me, I think. Mm -hmm. So because like parenting wasn't something that was right in front of me, right. Mm -hmm. Something that I could achieve at that moment. It wasn't necessarily on my radar. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So there's kind of that. I think I always just assumed I would be a parent because there was never a time where I was like, oh, gross. I don't want to do that. It was just like, yeah, that's coming later. Yeah. So there was, I didn't do a lot of playing with dolls. I didn't do a lot of like mom sort of like play. I was much more outside and kind of a tomboy and getting dirty and, you know, razzing
0: the neighbors. (laughs) Yeah. That's why I was too, like digging for worms and like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Playing soccer. Um, we're and just, Mid- Midwestern yeah. girls, right? Did you grow up in Missouri?
1: I did. I've okay. been born and raised in St. Louis. The only right. time I've really lived outside of St. Louis is when I went to college, but I moved to Springfield, Missouri, which is small. So mm-hmm. yeah. So the Midwestern in me was always kind of taking advantage of our weather when
0: I could, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can either be outside or you can't be outside. So. Right. so tell me about, did you know anything about fertility or like, what was your sex ed? education? Like, you know, don't have sex because you can get pregnant and here are the consequences
1: of having sex. And it was all of the, you know, worst case scenarios that they right? want to present them to
0: you yeah. as like, you don't want to be a tramp.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't want an STD, right. right. Or an, so They call them STIs now, but that's what, <laughs> that's what they said back then. So, right, exactly. um, yeah. So, I mean, that was really my sex education. I, you know, even more detailed than that, like when they first introduced you to the concept of like, a period, you know, it's just like this mysterious thing that they tell you is going to happen to you and they don't explain the cycle of it in any capacity. So it's like, I'm going to have my period. And and when I do, that means that I can get pregnant. And so I shouldn't have sex like that. That's what mm-hmm. was in my head.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. So fast forwarding, can we talk about how you, I know we're fast forwarding a, a lot in your life, but can you tell me how you met your husband and when you guys started to try to make a family? Sure. So my husband and I actually
1: met in elementary school, Mm -hmm. but we were completely different groups of friends. He was kind of the like skater. So we went to school all the way up through high school together. And Mm -hmm. we just, we knew each other because we had gone to school together for so long, but we were not in any kind of like friendship or interested in each other, you know, romantically. So fast forward to gosh, probably Ten a decade after we graduated and social media has everybody, you know, kind of reconnected. Mm -hmm. I had just left my incredibly abusive relationship. I was a year out of that and kind of immersed in what I call like my year of trauma therapy because I
0: was there so much. And And can I interject and say that you talk about that a lot in The House on Sunset, which everyone should read?
1: Yes, and that is really all that story is. I wanted to be as open and honest as I could about the previous relationship to my marriage because that was another trauma in my life that sort of reshaped a lot of who I wanted to be moving forward. So when we met, I was in trauma therapy, but the funny thing is he just posted on my Facebook wall. We had reconnected on Facebook. We really didn't talk all that much. There was an occasional banter. He posted on my wall and said, I had a dream about you last night you were yelling at me about the way that I um, filled out some paperwork, which if you know my story, I was a high school English teacher straight out of college. And so that sort of makes sense. I was kind of snarky about, you know, grammar on Facebook a lot (laughs) of the time. So so he said that, and, you know, I kind of laughed about it and didn't think anything of it. And crazily, one of his best friends from elementary school, who again, I knew, reached out to me and said, I never saw this before. I've never thought of it, but you and Joe should go on a date. And I said, I'm not interested in dating anyone right now. And he was like, but that's a shame because I told him that you were interested. <laughs> that's awesome. So we ended up going on what I would, I, like, I don't want to call it a pity date, but it was kind of like a, like a guilt date. Like I felt guilty. Cause I thought that he thought that I was interested. So I thought yeah, You know, yeah. I could hang out with him. Anyway, we ended up at his house. But wait, that don't you feel me, like you know, that's
0: the best way to go into a date? We were like, I don't yes. give a shit. Like, yes, yeah. And I'm sure he, you were exuding nonchalance and was probably like more attractive too. Yeah.
1: Well, I was so nervous. Like I didn't want to be in public because of everything that I had been through. And I knew my anxiety would be high. And I thought if it was just the two of us and less noise, there'd be okay. So I actually went like in the middle of the day to his house. He was babysitting or dog sitting his sister's dogs. So we had four dogs in the house, me and him, I had one beer and left, but I swear to you in the car, I was like, I'm going to marry that man. Whoa.
0: What what was it about him that made you think that?
1: It was his presence. It was sort of like what you described earlier. It was just this feeling of calm that I yeah. instantly felt when I was with him that I had never experienced
0: before. Yeah, um, and there was that's also, what I felt about you, Lindsay. I was like, I'm going to marry this girl.
1: Yeah, you were like, I love her. <laughs> In another that's life, I, was like, I just felt like there was something very special about him, and yeah. it wasn't it wasn't what he told me. It wasn't the way that he like you know tried to like razzle dazzle me. It was just. Him being him and me feeling like that was a safe space for me to be me.
0: Yeah. Just a feeling. Mm -hmm. And that must have been so important after the trauma that you'd been through, right?
1: Yeah. It was terrifying as well. It was a situation where it was like, I really want to try this, but I wasn't sure that I trusted myself. But fortunately, I had a therapist who kind of walked that line with me. So that was also another reason that I, when I had that feeling about him, even though it was unexpected... And I was interested in kind of furthering, like developing a relationship with him very slowly in the beginning. But knowing that I had somebody else that could walk that path with me, that was kind of an expert,
0: was delightful. When did you guys know that it was, you know, you were going to get married? So
1: it was slow until it wasn't. And um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the best way to describe it, right? perfect, yeah. I was just you know, digging my heels in for so long. And, you know, I was like, I just want to be friends. I just want to, you know, like, let's see how this goes. I don't know how I'm going to freak out. And then, you know, I thought there was going to be a moment where I was like, this is too much for me. I need to bounce. And that moment never presented itself. And so I would say it was probably who we were only dating for three months and I had figured out that I was in love with him. And that was the fastest that happened. And again, if I didn't have kind of the support that I did, it may have taken longer, but in the context of our relationship, because I had that, I think it was, it naturally kind of evolved and progressed a little bit faster because I was able to check in with an expert on what I was doing and how I was feeling.
0: Okay. So, sense.
1: yeah. So we were, you know, three months in when I think we started saying, I love you. I moved in with him. You know, we were a little bit older. We were, I think, 28 when we, yeah we've been together for 10 years. So I was 28 when we started dating, we got married right after I just turned 30. And then, you know, we were because of our age at that point, ready to start building a family. I mean, we started trying to get pregnant about three months before we were even married because I thought I could you know, hide that kind of bump at a wedding should I need to. That's not really how it turned out for us. We ended up struggling a little bit more than I anticipated. Right, so what happened exactly? So I actually had been, my best friend had endometriosis that was pretty severe. They were trying to conceive for a couple of years and struggling. She wasn't sharing a ton about it And I just knew that it was a thing. So one night we were out at a bar and she looked at me and she said, if you guys are going to start trying, you should start tracking your cycles because then you'll have information to take to your doctor should you need it. And at the time, I didn't necessarily take that conversation as something that would really be helpful to me because you know, I was like, how could she say this to me when I was, I'm just starting out, like, let's be optimistic. But now looking back, I know that it was from a place of grief and from wanting to help me. And so I did, I I downloaded the Kindara app and I started tracking my cycles Mm -hmm. from that three months out of the wedding point. So it was only, we hadn't even been married a year when I went to the doctor because we hadn't gotten pregnant, but I had had a year's worth of cycles tracked on my app. So when I went into him, I said, you know, I think we're struggling with infertility. We've been married for this long, gave him the rundown. And mm-hmm. I said, I've been tracking my cycles and we've been actively trying.
0: Right. You hadn't been pregnant, right? You just no, were getting I never,
1: pregnant? I have never been pregnant. I had never okay. been
0: pregnant up to that point.
1: And, you know, if I'm completely honest, there were times where I worried about it, right? There were moments even before we were actively trying that maybe, because I was having sex before we got married. So there were times where it was like, oh, I think I should have been pregnant by now, which I think
0: a lot of us think. I think a lot of us too, in the back of our minds, and this might be good for people who are listening that you kind of, I feel like you kind of know sometimes if you're going to have a problem, like way before you even start to get into that mindset. I mean, I didn't personally, (laughs) but I think a lot of people do.
1: Yeah, I, there was definitely something there. There was a question that I had always had that maybe I didn't focus on all of the time, but it was always
0: present. Yeah. So and it's so, almost like a listen to your gut thing. If you yes. have that feeling, maybe just yes. even get it checked out or start doing some research.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that's also, you know, a lot of times, like I, when I went into that appointment with him, I hadn't been well, I had been trying for a year, but it wasn't like we had been married for a year. It wasn't, I was just very honest with him and said, look, we've been doing this for this long and here is my proof. And that moved it along so much faster for me than if I would have just waited and gone in without kind of tracking that. So, so detailing your cycles, even if you're not like, changing the way that you're moving through or trying to like strategize or pay attention to when you're ovulating and all of that stuff. It doesn't have to be that detailed. It can just be tracking your periods. And totally. that's really yeah. all I did.
0: It's so easy now too, with all these apps and stuff. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. So we had that appointment. My doctor was immediately, you know, one of the first things that he asked me was, has your husband been checked out yet? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, He had taken an at-home semen analysis test. Did you know this
0: exist? (laughs) That's hot.
1: (laughs) So, but it came back like completely fine. It said everything was fine. Uh So, you know, like you mail it in kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I was just like, all of the numbers are good. You don't have any concerns. So we just didn't think it was him. We just thought it was a problem with me because he had taken this at-home test. And my cycles... Progressively started getting more and more out of whack. I attribute that to stress. At the time, I thought that there was something else going on with me, but I would, they just, I had always been really consistent. And this was the first time in my life that they hadn't been. So we suspected there was something going on with me. But when I told my doctor that that is what we did this at home semen analysis, he kind of laughed at me and he goes, I know that there are some really great advances in, in female reproductive, you know, like you can take an ovulation test at home. That's pretty accurate. Uh, that's not the case with men's fertility. He needs to go be seen by someone else. That's actually
0: professional.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so anyway, so he went to go do this even analysis. We got those results back and they were completely the opposite of what the at-home results had shown. He had motility and morphology issues and his count was substantially low. So they decided at that point, my regular OB, that the best approach for us would be to go straight to IUI.
0: Okay. So Um, how did you guys feel about that as a couple? And did you talk about it? I know that's hard. It's a hard diagnosis to take sometimes, right?
1: I think I was, again, it goes back to that empathy piece, right? So when he called, so the doctor called me, Joe wasn't even home when I got that information because technically I was his patient. So the Mm -hmm. results were sent to him and he relayed the message to me. So when Joe got home from work that day, I was going to have to be the one to tell him about that and, or have him call the doctor back. Right. And I just kept thinking about like, what is going to this is going to be something that's difficult for him to swallow. I think any, any of us that receive some sort of diagnosis, it's not a joyful moment in our lives. And we'll talk about this later, but you know, later I was diagnosed with endometriosis and not until after I actually had my twins. So, you know, I didn't have a diagnosis through all of our treatment until after I delivered the kids. Right. But, So we went through all of treatment thinking that it was male factor. And I was very cognizant of the fact because we weren't sure what was going on until he got his results that it very well could be me. And so I told him that, you know, as far as I was concerned, the diagnosis may be on his end, but we're a team and we need both of us to be, you know, functioning well to have children, right? Biological children of our own. And so as far as I was concerned, it was going to be a team effort from there and that there was no shame or resentment on my end. Now there is, you know, the moment where when we get later on into our journey, that resentment grows because I'm the one that's having to do the treatment while he is the one that has the diagnosis and doesn't have to do much of anything. Mm -hmm. So it's complicated, right? Because it's this thing that it, it doesn't necessarily like, You can process it and think you're in a good place with it. And then it resurfaces every time you move through something happens in your journey, right? It's something that comes back up.
0: Were you guys getting along as a couple or like, what was your emotional state of mind together?
1: I really think we just leaned in. I, for me, it was one of those things where even though I resented him, there was no good use in, you know, arguing about that or making him feel shame or guilt about it. It Mm -hmm. was one of those things where he already had enough to process on his own, so I could process my own feelings.
0: If that right. makes,
1: yeah, that know. makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. So what happened next? So you've got this diagnosis, and so then we went straight
1: into IUI. Okay. Yes, they didn't even medicate my first one. They were going to do just a natural IUI. So you know, I was going in. For observation at my regular OB. He was comfortable doing the IUIs in his office. So I was not even seeing a reproductive endocrinologist at this point. Mm -hmm. So I went in for the first couple of appointments. And again, my cycles had been getting weird. So I was not ovulating. Like I kept going every two days, every two days for monitoring. And then finally he looked at me and he was like, These appointments are getting expensive and you're not ovulating this month. So maybe next month we'll put you on Clomid. But at this point, I think we need to cancel. So reluctantly, we canceled our first IUI because I couldn't ovulate. And then when my cycle actually caught back up, they put me on Clomid for the next cycle to help me kind of stay on schedule. And Clomid was a nasty bitch. Yes. (laughs) Tell me about your Clomid
0: experience. Everyone's different, but what was yours like?
1: I had the hot flashes and the mood swings. yeah. Um, and I think they could trigger each other. So if I had a hot flash and I realized what was happening, like all of the emotional anxiety and all of that stuff would just kind of like pop up at the same time. So I laugh about it because I there's a point where I found myself driving in my car. I got a hot flash. I rolled down the window. It was freezing outside. And I'm laughing at myself because there's nothing that I can do about it. But then I start crying because (laughs) here we are in this really tough situation. And so then I'm laughing because I'm crying and I look like a crazy person driving my car. Totally.
0: That's going to be the pull quote for your episode. Clomid is a nasty bitch.
1: Yeah, that's, it's true. She is a nasty, (laughs) nasty bitch. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And in fact, and I would argue for me that I had more like a f- negative responses, like physically to Clomid than I did to any other. Yes. You
0: said I that to me before. Moment. That's interesting. Yeah. I remember you saying yeah. that when we first talked. Yeah. She was, she was ferocious. Okay. <laughs> so how long were you planning on doing the IUIs and was, what was the point where you guys moved on? Okay.
1: So after, so, so we went in for the second IUI. It did keep my s- schedule just fine. Like everything went the way that it was supposed to. So I went in, I, you know, I carried the semen because they didn't have a space for Joe to, like, collect his sample in the office. So we actually went to his br- brother's house. He collected in his brother's bathroom because it was closer to the hospital. Yeah. So and I was afraid of timing. Right. So I yeah, carried in my cleavage.
0: Yes. You office. put it in the cleave.
1: Yeah. That's that's the warmest spot that I could think of. Exactly.
0: That's a great method of transport.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I carried it in that way. So I went up, they collected it, you know, and went to spin it and do whatever they do back there and called me back. My doctor came in and said, okay, we're going to do this one. And I said, okay. And he was like, but we don't have a very good sample. It's actually worse than what I would normally allow for an IUI, but we're here and we had to cancel the last one. So let's just try it.
0: Ugh. but we're like, and, and that'll be $2,500. <laughs> right.
1: Right. And then he were you like, paying
0: out of pocket for this? Yes. Okay.
1: We had coverage for testing, but not for procedures. So once gotcha. we had any kind of diagnosis, nothing was covered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, we went in, he said that to me, and then he said, dun, dun, dun. If, you don't get pregnant this time. Call me and let me know. And then I'm going to recommend that you guys go to IVF because you're going to need more support than this. Okay. So I did not get pregnant and he gave me the name of a reproductive endocrinologist in St. Louis who I quickly made an appointment with. I think I didn't even give myself a second to breathe because when I heard that there was a problem that we needed fixed by this new procedure, it was like, okay, well, this is going to fix it. So let's just move on. Right. Right. There was no need to process anything. It was just like, this is going to get us pregnant because that's what I heard him say to me, whether or not he actually said those words.
0: Right. Well, it's like problem Uh solution. Okay, great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, that was the mode that I was in. So, I made a couple of calls and honestly, we were talking like in and had decided on a reproductive endocrinologist uh, within two months. And then I was ready to cycle the next month.
0: Okay. So So it's all happening kind of quickly. Although you've been trying for a while now, right? How long had it been? Like over a year?
1: It had been... Oh yeah. So we were, we had been married in June of the previous year. I think it was June of that year that we found out that IUI was not going to work for us. That's the, the month of the failed cycle. And then two months later in August, we mm-hmm. were like connected with the RE. And then in September, we started cycling. So okay. it had been probably 15 to 15 months of trying mm-hmm. at that okay. point. Uh, no, 15, absolutely. It was like a year and a half of trying because we had started trying before we got married. So mm-hmm. So So only 18 months of trying, but his semen was struggling. So IVF. So we started, they told me everything looked great on my end. I did the normal testing. They were not concerned about me. They were just concerned about his numbers. So we went in with a plan of doing ICSI and PGS testing And just because we wanted to like in our head at that point, it was going to eliminate the possibility of miscarriage and get us pregnant faster. If we had PGS tested embryos, that's, Mm -hmm. and I was in a hurry. So,
0: yeah.
1: So that's why we decided to do it that way. My first retrieval did not go as planned from almost straight out of the gate. And that's when we started to see complications on my end. Mm -hmm. So at my like day nine, appointment, cycle day nine appointment, none of my follicles had been responding to any of the meds that they put me on, despite all of my numbers from all of my blood tests looking good. And so they told me that we needed to, you know, double my meds and, and hopefully things would start to look better. And they did. So when we got to retrieval, After that kind of rocky start and a lot of pumping me full of really high doses of meds to get me to react Mm -hmm. quickly, I had 22 follicles, 18 of them were mature, 12 fertilized, and then that was kind of what I knew the day after. But in between there, I am also one of the lucky 1% who had the RE somehow grazed and popped a blood vessel on my ovary. Mm. So I had internal bleeding that resulted in hospitalization. It's the worst pain to this day that I've ever been in, in my life. Oh my um, God. What did it feel like? I don't even know how to describe that level of pain. If I'm being totally honest, I mm-hmm. couldn't even put words together. By the time we were at the ER, I was like gasping for air just to process the pain that I was in. It felt like I couldn't breathe. (laughs) Like, literally, it just, it literally was taking, when people say the pain, like, you know, the pain takes like your breath away. That's exactly what it was. But it was more of a gasping, struggling, not just like a moment where I could, I couldn't catch my breath.
0: Oh my God. Were you like, what the hell is happening? That must have been so scary.
1: So when I left retrieval, you know, you're still kind of loopy and out of it. And I I was on the way home and I didn't feel great. I kind of felt nauseous. But I was, I, it was my first one. So I didn't know what to expect. It wasn't until a couple hours later that it started to get, you know, the pain progressively got worse because the internal bleeding hadn't stopped. So more and more of my abdomen was being filled with blood. So I was feeling more and more pain. So anyway, I finally decided that, you know, I needed to call the doctor when I couldn't walk to the bathroom. Like Mm -hmm. I just couldn't get myself off of the couch And so I called and they were like, yeah, we'll call you in a prescription of Tylenol, but this could just be, you know, cramping. They don't know your pain tolerance. And some people, I have a pretty high pain tolerance, but I didn't vocalize that. And so they sent me in a prescription of Tylenol. Joe went and picked it up. I took it. It did not take any of the pain off. And by the time I went to bed that night, I was in bed and I started to kind of seize like, like that gasping that I was talking about. So then he was like, we need to go to the emergency room. This is not okay. Well, it was because the internal bleeding had reached the point of like hitting my diaphragm. And so my di like my body thought that I was drowning. (gasps) So that's why I was gasping. Oh my God, Lindsay. Crazy, right? Yes. Yes. So that's my first retrieval. And then the next day while I'm in the hospital, like the next morning, because they sent me like the hospital that I went to didn't even have experience with what I was going through. So they gave me a blood transfusion and then sent me to a different hospital because they didn't know how to help me. So did they tell you what it was, Had they diagnosed it. They knew that it was probably. So they actually called my reproductive endocrinologist that night and talked to him and said, I'm guessing it's this because they did an ultrasound. Like, I don't, it's so hard for me to remember all of the details, but they knew that it wasn't, we knew that it wasn't like, you know, overstimulation. Mm -hmm. And he had, he couldn't, he was like, this has only happened. He literally said this to the nurse on the phone. This has only happened three times in my career, but I suspect this is what's happening because of the level of pain and because of the blood loss, right? Because they could see that. So, he was like, give her a blood transfusion and then, you know, call me back. And they were like, well, we're not going to admit her. Like I was in the emergency room and they were like, we can't admit her here. We don't feel like we can take that on. So he told them to send me to a different hospital. So that's what they did. They took me by ambulance to another hospital after I had a blood transfusion and they had my pain kind of regulated with drugs.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's wild. Okay. So they so released not a good me a retrieval
1: Yeah, so out of the retrieval, I had 12 fertilized. At day five, we ended up with five, five day five embryos to send off for testing. You know, and I was still healing from this. Like I could not really, it took about a week for me to be able to like walk upright. And I just had to wait for the blood to dissipate, like just kind of be reabsorbed by my body. Mm -hmm. So through all of that, I ended up with one embryo, at the end. And that was a hard pill to swallow because from the beginning, I had been told that, you know, I had the ovarian reserve of a 17 year old and all of these other things and how it was going to be so easy. And Joe and I had always anticipated having more than one kid. Mm -hmm. And so when it came down to us only having one embryo, I knew that we were, you know, it was only one shot. We didn't even know if we were going to get pregnant and the rug had just been pulled out from under me because of all of the complications, I was not as confident going into a transfer as I had been going into that retrieval. So I had to decide if I was going to do another retrieval or if I was going to transfer it and see what happened and then do another retrieval later. But you know, age was something that I was aware of too. And I was afraid that if I transferred and was fortunate enough to get pregnant, I would go through that pregnancy and then maybe you know, give myself some time to kind of figure out parenting before I went back through this again. And then that was going to put me over 35 years old when right. they say that all of this is going to, everything is going to be harder, right? Mm-hmm. This is what they tell you. And so with the drop-off from my first retrieval and how that all ended up, it didn't seem like that made the most sense. So I pretty quickly decided that we were going to do this again, but that caused a lot of anxiety because I was terrified of doing it again. So I actually ended up taking a couple months off. They wouldn't even, because my transfer would have been scheduled for not the following month, but the month after that, because my clinic only did frozen embryo transfers unless you specifically requested to have a fresh transfer. Okay. And so... I knew that my retrieval wasn't going to be for, or I'm sorry, my transfer wouldn't be for two months. So I canceled that right away. They told me that it was going to, you know, I had like blood clots from the internal bleeding. And so Mm -hmm. one of them was just hanging out on my ovary. And then another one was hanging out. And sorry, if this is
0: too, too much on my bowel. So never too much, Lindsay. This is we go there on this. So
1: it was like, they recommend like peeing and, Pooping hurt. They recommended peeing in like I literally. They told me to get in a warm bathtub and pee so that it didn't hurt so much. Oh my
0: god, that's practical.
1: I was (laughs) like, this is the most disgusting experience of my life. And just (laughs) pain, yeah. It it was so. It was so bizarre. It was just there was a lot of grief again, and there was some ignorance that's you know stolen from you, and there's just all of this stuff. It's so complicated because it's like. You It shouldn't be this hard. Yes. It just shouldn't be this hard. Right. Exactly. That's what I was kind of processing. So Joe was like traumatized by watching me in that pain. And he said, we're not, we're taking a break. You have got to heal from this. I cannot watch you push yourself through this. And we really leaned into each other and were very honest through the entire process about if and when somebody needed something, right, we were a team. And if he noticed that I was struggling, he was going to tell me and it wasn't always an easy conversation. And his voice may have trembled, but we made it. And so Mm -hmm. we decided to take a break. And I wanted to so we were looking at, you know, December or January as when we would go back in. And um, I didn't want to do it for the holidays. I just couldn't imagine having an outcome that was less than stellar and trying to process Christmas and Thanksgiving. And my birthday is right then. And then New Year's and just doing all of this, you know, this time of year when you are surrounded by friends and family and it's supposed to be joyous. I couldn't imagine cycling through that and being okay. Yeah. So I didn't do it. And we scheduled our retrieval for January I didn't really do much of anything different. I went into that one. They knew, you know, from the first one that I may not respond well to meds. So we upped my meds from out of the gate. And that one was much more successful. I retrieved 24, which 20 of them were mature, 18 fertilized. How do you um, remember all this? Do you have this written down? I
0: do. Okay.
1: <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Uh,
0: no, it's that no, crazy. But I'm I like, like, I don't remember any of the numbers. And I realized that when I recall like my numbers, I'm always saying different ones. And my mom actually was like, you know, I've been listening to your podcast. Like you got to get your story straight. I,
1: so I and do I'm that like, with, I don't
0: remember because yes. <laughs> you block it yes. out.
1: Well, it's like you dissociate right
0: in the totally. middle of it.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's like, you can tell you, you remember the feelings, you remember the moment, but the details are really foggy. And I knew that from the trauma. So I did track this much more because I knew that I was going to be talking about it more. So I wrote all of this stuff down and I documented it online. I was, you know, on Instagram at this point. It was an interesting time because I knew what I really needed to focus on was self-care because of my previous trauma and because of all of the therapy that I was in it, and despite that you know just because you you know that self care is important it doesn't necessarily mean that you feel any different about wanting to do it and so i was just really so focused on making sure that i was showing up for myself in that time frame and i think one of the things that i maybe tricked myself into believing though there was really no reason to believe it is that i was going to At some point, if we had the results that we wanted, which was to conceive, I wouldn't have the opportunity to take those couple of months off. And because I had already scheduled that retrieval out, it really did sort of feel like a a reprieve, but it took a while to get my head right there. So I was really in a good place mentally going into the second one because I utilized every moment that I could in kind of like... I don't know, self-help
0: sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. What did Um, did self-care like look like to you at that point? Like what kinds of things were you doing? Through IVF, I was always, I
1: always had a gratitude journal. That was something that was really important to me. You know, infertility takes a lot of reasons away from you to be thankful, or at least it shifts your perspective, right? And your lens. So the things that are the most important to you, or the things that are really impacting you, are so, so hard. And in order to kind of balance that and not get completely and entirely sucked into that black hole of depression that definitely loomed over me, I was writing about gratitude every day. I think the thing that is so cool about a gratitude practice is you don't, it doesn't cost anything. It's easy to do. You can do it in your mind, even if you don't have paper. And it's just a matter of listing. I always stick between five and 10 things that I'm grateful for in my day. So that was a really big one. And I would just write it down before bed to remind myself that despite everything else, feeling completely and totally shitty, there were good moments and that helped a ton. I was also trying to stay a little bit active I was kind of trying to nurture my body and detox it from all of the IVF drugs. And so they're really basic things. I think a lot of people, when they think about a self-care practice, they think of these really huge, you know, events or experiences. And that for me, especially when you're in a state of trauma, just is too unrealistic. There's, there's no way that I'm going to stick to that. But if I can stick to these other few things... That really don't cost me much besides a little bit of my time. And also that time then is dedicated to, to me. So if that's the only cost, then it, it it's worth it, right? I see the value in that. So that's why I kind of stuck to the basics. Yeah. So the, the month that the two-week weight challenge came out was the month that we started IVF. So I actually wrote the two-week weight challenge. Before, like I I was in the middle of doing IUIs and and it was one of those situations where when I found out that that was our game plan, I immediately went into kind of like fix it mode. Like what can I do to better prepare myself for what's coming forward? And so I started scheduling out my own self-care because self-care was something that I was talking about before then because of my therapy. And so I wrote it in this is going to sound nuts. It took six weeks to get it together, but I wrote it in two days.
0: I I sat. I mean, that's so fast. Yeah. It's so impressive.
1: Yeah. Well, it was, you know, the thing about the two-week weight challenge is that... it's not a lot of reading. It's more about the, the activities and what you're doing. And so there were a couple of pages of content per you know day because it's a 14 day breakdown of the two week wait and self-care activities for you to do to kind of help yourself navigate it, give yourself something to look forward to as a distraction and a positive one, as opposed to, again, going into that dark hole that I just talked about. And so I knew going in to... IVF that I was going to need that. So when I wrote the two-week weight challenge, I was also curating my own mm-hmm. self-care. So
0: it, it kind of came out naturally because I was so focused on it. Right. I mean, it's not like writing a novel in two days, but there's a lot of thought that goes into this and in organization. And like you said, curating kind of these activities and these challenges, these positive self-care challenges. So that's kudos to you for pulling it together. Thanks. Uh, so were you, you were using your own guide, obviously, as you're going through it then, right?
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is the the reason that I wrote it into a book is because I wanted to be able to support people as much as I possibly could. But I knew that access to me would be limited, even if I had a gazillion followers on social media and that you know, putting it somewhere, like putting all of that content that I was doing for myself into a book became a way for people who always asked me later on, like, well, what did, what do you do? Or how did you cope? I'm like, well, this is exactly what I did. Like, this is my, this is,
0: this is who I am. So, so it, it was pretty natural to write. Yeah. So let's go back to your chronology. So then, okay. So the new year comes around and then what happened?
1: So the new year comes around. I started cycling pretty quickly. Our retrieval was at the end of January. They changed my meds a lot because of my lack of response to the first retrieval. So they upped my protocol, basically doubling almost all of my meds that I was on. And so it worked really well. I responded from straight out of the gate and that retrieval, so we don't get too bogged down in numbers. With the last one, I had six PGS normals or I'm sorry, I had six to send for testing and came out with the one. And with the second retrieval, I sent five for testing and three of those came back. PGS tested normal. Okay. So how did it feel to get those results? It was, I I was ready to be done with retrievals at that point. Like, okay, we got it. Yeah. I was like, this is, this is a comfortable space for me. So we started talking about transfers and I said this before, but my specific clinic only does frozen embryo transfers unless you specifically request a frozen for some reason. Mm -hmm. And so I, or I'm sorry, a fresh. So I knew that they were not going to do it the next round because, you know, I wouldn't have been able, I wouldn't have been able to do it the next month because I sent them for PGS testing and the timing didn't work out to get the results back and cycle. So I scheduled my first IVF transfer for March of 2017. It was March 17th and I transferred two embryos that day and they both stuck. (laughs) (laughs) Still a little weird to say that. It still doesn't even feel true, even though I have Three and a half year
0: old twins. Right, right. But so tell me about your the transfer and then like the weight, you know, speaking of the two week weight. Yeah. How is um, that for you? You know, you you can put a lot of pressure on yourself
1: when you say that you do self-care really well and then you write a book about self care for people in the two week wait, and then you have to publicly do a two week wait in front. Right? You're like, oh shit! Now I have to like
0: put my money where my mouth is.
1: <laughs> okay, you can do this. But honestly, I work well under that pressure. It's why I talk about this stuff so much because I know that it keeps me accountable to myself. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so transfer prep was fine. Estrogen really gives me migraines, which I still struggle with at this point. So that was. A little bit difficult transfer. It was so weird. You know, it's one of those things where it's like every time there's a new piece of a proceed, like of this process, whether it be a procedure or, you know, any, anything like that. I feel like you can get really foggy in the moment because you're like, okay, I just need to survive this so that I know what it's like. So that if I have to do it again, I know I survived it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, totally. (laughs) So that's kind of where I I was like, we're just going to get through it. We're just going to get through it. And so we did transfer, went really well. And then I had a two week wait that fortunately, and maybe not fortunately for me, I started having symptoms pretty quick, but you know, some of that can come from progesterone, but my sense of smell was really, really heightened. And there was something else that was happening too. Anyway, oh, I was passing out. I was falling asleep on the couch, like having a conversation with my husband. what (laughs) What is that? So- Anyway,
0: the medical marijuana at that
1: point. No, I was not. So, but yes, so I was doing those things and it was kind of like, and that can be a mind fuck too, because you don't know what's causing that. It could be anything, but really, I think again, putting that pressure on myself and holding myself accountable. And also I didn't, I, I am not a pee on a stick person. I did not pee on any sticks uh, before beta And you did it. It just stresses me out. I know it's so good for some people, but for me, it's like, I would have just been crushed to see. I'd already seen enough negative.
0: I didn't need to see that again. But yeah, for me, it was just, I have done everything by the book. I'm just going to, you know, I've waited so Mm -hmm. long. We did have a frozen embryo transfer, so I had to wait another month. You know, I was like, I'm just going to wait until I go to the doctor's office. I don't want to get a false positive, a false negative. Like I don't, you know, you never know what's going to happen.
1: Yeah. And that's true too, because so when I went in, so my clinic does seven days past transfer and nine days past transfer. So my two week wait was really only a week. And normally they don't even tell you what your results are on that day. Like that seventh day, they won't tell you until they know that your beta has doubled. That's just the way that they do it there. Okay, Um, And I think a lot of I don't know if a lot of places do it, but I don't think we're the only ones. But anyway, so I had been blogging for them, like blogging my experience on their website. Uh And so I asked them if they could tell me my day seven results so that I had two days to process it before I wrote about what was happening. Okay. So they did give me my day seven results and I was super pumped because it was a pretty decent beta. But so of course, the first thing that I do is run upstairs to pee on a stick so that I can see the first positive pregnancy test of my life. Um,
0: <laughs> that is such a TTC community thing that like our people will only understand. Right.
1: Yeah. Do you want to hear the the most perfect part of this TTC portion though? Yes. It was a ne- It was negative. No. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> so I called them back not That's because I was worried, but I was just like, how is this happening? Like, explain to me how you know that my beta is positive, but it's not catching on this test. And she's like, I don't know, wait until tomorrow and take another one. And I was terrified that I was going to get another negative. So I waited again until after my day nine confirmed that my number doubled. And then I ran back upstairs and peed on the other test that was in the pack that I bought. And that was my first positive Of my my life, and the only one I've seen. (laughs) I love that. Oh my God, that's so good. So it was surreal. And, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but I feel like I kind of spaced out just for a little bit because it was like I just needed to figure out how to ground myself and feel present again because everything had been like you're pushing for so long. Even if you take a two month break in the middle of cycling, that's not a lot of time considering you've been doing this for three years. And so it felt like, I could breathe, but then it also felt like there was this new complex piece that I didn't
0: expect to be difficult, which was, you know, pregnancy after infertility. So let's talk about that a little bit. How was the pregnancy after infertility piece for you? And we should say you are one of our fertility rally hosts for our pregnancy after infertility groups, which we started because we have a lot of members now who are pregnant, thankfully, but we wanted to continue to support them You know, it doesn't end when you get those, that positive test, obviously, as you well know.
1: Yeah, it really doesn't. And I understand why it's not a piece that's necessarily or hasn't been. I think there are more people talking about it now than there were a couple of years ago. And I I know that part of the reason that people weren't talking about it, or even when I was, you know, in March of 2017, when I first was pregnant, I was very quiet about all of my fears and how difficult pregnancy was for me because- I didn't want anyone to not have this idea that they were going to come out of infertility and feel cured or like, this is something to only celebrate. Right. I think we expect a rainbow after the storm and that's, you know, in in metaphorically, not necessarily in terms of, you know, how we and TTC talk about rainbows, but I think a lot of times we expect IVF to work or there's this expectation of when you do get pregnant, no matter how that happens, There are things that you have said that you're not going to do that other parents who maybe you see as short-sighted or don't have your perspective, you know, do and it irks you. But then you, for me, I can't speak for anyone else, but for me, when I got to that point, all of those fears were very valid. It was, you know, the fear of infertility, I think, just sort of seeps over into pregnancy because at all moments, you're waiting for the bottom to drop out. And, you know, something is going to happen that's going, you're going to have to pivot. You're going to have to redirect. You're going to be disappointed. And so, you know, every scan, every, gosh, just anything like my, my first appointment with my OB after I graduated from the endocrinologist, they brought a Doppler in and I was, 12 weeks at that point and pregnant with twins. And he came in with a Doppler and said, Oh, I can't find anything. No, no. (laughs) you can't say that. (laughs) And yeah. So I'm like immediately panicking. Like, I don't, what do you mean you can't? And he's like, Well, it's really hard when they're this little and when they're twins. And I'm like, So why are we even trying? And why
0: did you say it that way? (laughs) Seriously. I, I like just got a panicky flashback when you said that, honestly. Yeah. It's it was just, you know
1: and I didn't want it to be that way. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to feel like everything that I had done to get pregnant was worth it. And and I, when I say that, I don't mean it like I don't appreciate and love my children and see their value. They are amazing. But what I mean is it still felt like I was very far away from coming to that
0: realization. Totally. Yeah. Did you ever have any major scares like throughout the pregnancy uh, or like what were some of the lower moments? So I had
1: two placentas and one was behind them and one was in front of them. So I couldn't really feel a whole lot of movement or kicking. So I had interior placenta, which means that there's a placenta positioned kind of in the front of your stomach. And that just made it really difficult to feel them moving around. So a lot of people that were pregnant around the same time as me. And that's another thing that I think is really interesting about getting pregnant after infertility is, you know, you. I met a lot of people at my clinic like we had our own Facebook group of people that were cycling at the same time and so all of them were sharing these milestones of I felt today has anyone felt the baby kick and I'm like I can't feel anything is is any you know is everything okay in there so that was that kind of stunk just because it was an uneasiness and then with the doppler situation on the very first Mm-hmm. appointment. I couldn't bring myself to get one because I knew I'd get at home and not be able to hear something and just think doom and gloom, just right. like peeing on sticks. I couldn't use a Doppler. So, right. um, so, so yeah, so I stuck with that. And then I also had gestational diabetes, which was, you know, I really wanted, I didn't want to do injections. That was a big thing for me. I wanted to, if I could manage it without medicine, I really wanted to try to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I worked really hard to try to keep my blood sugar under control. And, um, we did, I, toward the end of the pregnancy started to be concerned that I was getting closer to labor than what maybe like all of my tests and all of my appointments were telling me. I just kept fearing going into preterm labor. And that's something that they tell you when you're pregnant with multiples that you're much more likely to deliver early. So it did happen, even though I, I kept asking the doctor and she kept telling me not to worry about it. I wanted to get a steroid injection for their lungs. At th- I was like 33 weeks and six days. If I recall correctly, it was either the day before or two days before I went into into labor that I asked for that shot. And she was like, you're so close. You don't need it. And then I went into labor at 34 weeks. So I had the twins via cesarean section that day. And mm-hmm. They spent six weeks in the NICU. They did make me, I was considered high risk. So I did go to MFM a couple of times, but that wasn't even, they said, you're fine. And they sent me on my way. So yeah. I really didn't have, obviously I had extra appointments, like people who are pregnant with multiples have additional appointments on top of what like a singleton pregnancy does. But other than that, I didn't have, I mean, I had those Things that were happening, and I never felt good. I actually, oh, actually, this is glamorous. So I'll share it. I, (laughs) this is gonna be good. Yeah. So my morning sickness was not out of my mouth, Uh I had diarrhea constantly. And I mean, I, like, I didn't have, like, I'm so sorry, to, I'm so sorry, but I didn't have a regular bowel movement my entire pregnancy, but I was dehydrating myself so quickly that I would end up in the hospital needing fluids. My insurance actually sent me a letter, like, they. I was going to, <laughs> I was going to, like, you know, the take like take care clinics and stuff. I was going to those and just saying, I need fluids. And they sent me a thing and they were like, if you are if you're in need of fluids this often, you need to go to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Not just the like, like the humart, like <laughs> Yeah. I those. was like, listen, but my my reproductive endocrinologist, because I started getting that sick before I graduated, was just letting me go there. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was doing it that way. I just thought it was no big deal. But I was literally getting fluids probably two or three times a week. They wow. they my doctor told me that he couldn't technically consider it hyperemesis because it wasn't vomit.
0: Oh, wow. That's interesting. But it
1: was almost as, I mean, for 22 weeks of my pregnancy, that was, and then I had on top, like, so after I started to feel better, I had gestational diabetes. So, and you know, I wasn't eating anything terrible because I couldn't, like, everything was just, it was so terrible. It was terrible.
0: Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. But also going back to the pregnancy after infertility tip, did you feel like you couldn't complain? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, di- I didn't share
1: any of that in, in any way. And I was sharing my entire story up until then. I was so honest about every single thing. I would have done, you know, an Instagram live if we had it back then from the room with a transfer, right? Like that's how open I was about everything that was going on. And then I got pregnant and it was such a mindfuck. I did not know how to move forward from there. And that was a bigger, that it, it, it was a struggle. And then, you know, I think that carried into motherhood too, right? Like I felt on some level, like a lot of people didn't think that I should be complaining because I should know how happy and wonderful everything is all of the mm-hmm. time. Like how thankful I should be. And it's hard because I know where that's coming from. I know the pain that they're feeling. And I have said those things in my life. Right. Do you still so. feel that way today? I think there are parts of me, I think, so actually I found a therapist when the kids were about a year old, I started to notice that the self-care that I was doing at home wasn't necessarily taking all of the edge off. And so I found a therapist and went in and she was really adamant about me kind of processing like my pregnancy grief, you know, and then like all of the grief associated with this idea that you that everything's going to be wonderful. And then the grief associated with having like a normal delivery and all of those, all of those things. So, yeah, I think, you know, that's something that I don't know. It's just for me, when I look at my kids and, and I don't think about it every day by any stretch, but when I look at them and I think about what we've been through and how fortunate I am to have them, when I do get frustrated, I almost immediately, will shame myself with what other people I think would probably say if they were in a bad place. Yeah. Like the internal messaging is sometimes, uh, you know, how how can you not remember how hard this was? You should be more grateful for what you have. Right. Right. I
0: get that. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Even with Sonny's now five and change, you know, it's like, I I don't think that ever goes away. I mean, it's like, you know, better than anybody. Trauma, it cuts so deep. It does. And,
1: and you know, you're you're probably, I think what I have figured out in my life is that you're going to carry it one way or the other, and I'm just going to do my best to make it lighter for myself. That doesn't mean that other people have to see it that way. It doesn't mean that other people have to process the way that I do. But if I'm going to be carrying this trauma for the rest of my life, I am going to do my damnedest to do work on it, to make it less of a problem.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And also you can see Lindsay Fisher at Fertility Rally Live, which is happening on April 17th. So if you haven't gotten your tickets or you don't know anything about it, Definitely follow us on Instagram at Fertility Rally or go to fertilityrally.com and you can see our entire lineup. It's a full day virtual event of panelists, breakout speakers, keynote speakers. It's going to be incredible if you need support or you want to feel empowered. We have people talking about everything from surrogacy to egg donation, to freezing your eggs, to IVF, to adoption and so much more so we'd love to see you guys there come and rally with us also if you can't make it to the live event if you get a ticket you have access to all the talks for 30 days afterwards so definitely check it out at fertilityrally.com and on instagram at fertility rally thanks guys talk to you next time